a prayer as we get into the tangle that was the Corinthian church. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight by the power of your Holy Spirit and with the written word open before us. Help us now, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you've got a feel for the new king, Charles. Do you remember the leaky pen? Just a few days after the um, accession to the throne, and uh, he was in Northern Ireland at Hillsborough Castle, there, and he lost his temper with a leaky pen, and unfortunately the footage went viral everywhere. Well, it was perfectly understandable um, that he was irritated, especially given all that he was living through. But still, it was out of place. We all knew it. Actually, a few months later, he'd regained his sense of humor, and uh, the royal humor returned a few months later. I don't know if you know this. He said in a speech in the city of London when they presented him with a pearly sword, he said, our ability to laugh at ourselves is one of our great national characteristics. Just as well, you may say, given some of the vicissitudes I have faced with frustratingly failing fountain pens this, like, this past year. So uh, he knew it as well. And um, there we are. You see, what you are, that you must be. King? Behave like it. That was what he was learning. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians again. And this morning, a big chunk of it that Elizabeth just read, chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6. And in these past few weeks, if you've been here, you'll know, we've, been, we've seen how the status-obsessed Corinthian church members were squabbling and boasting about their favorite church leaders. Worldly-minded they were in their whole approach. But today, we see that there are more problems going on at Corinth and uh, more problems that had emerged in this overconfident young church. Now, we can't go through the whole of this text in detail this morning, um, so I've got a strategy. What I'm going to do, what we're going to do, and I hope it'll work out, is to invest some time in just a very short section of it, chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Um, and after that, I think that's like building a little platform for ourselves, and from that vantage point, we'll then be able to survey the rest of it, I think, quite easily. So let me read verses 6 to 8 of chapter 5. They're some of my favorite verses. I remember them from, from an Easter day um, growing up in a more traditional church where we sang the Easter anthems every, every Easter Sunday. And these words come up in those great anthems of resurrection life. So here we are. Paul says to them, your boasting is not good. That's an understatement. Don't you know that a little yeast works with a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the yeast, but with bread made without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Well, what's all that about? That's where we're going to invest a bit of time in this statement that Paul makes. What's all this about? The Passover lamb? Or better, the, uh, um, the, 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 the yeast there, or, or, or as it's better translated, the unleavened um, uh, bread, the leaven and the unleavened bread. What's all this about? What is the festival that he's talking about? Well, you know, it's an absolute joy and a privilege for me this morning to explain it. If you're not aware what it all is, you have to go back 
1,500 years or so before the birth of Jesus uh, to really grasp it. It's all recorded in the Bible book of Exodus. And um, it's where God rescued his people, Israel, from their slavery in Egypt. If you know the story, you'll know that judgment was pronounced. The Lord pronounces judgment against uh, Egypt, the death of the firstborn in every house. But for the Israelites, there was a way of escape and salvation, which was to do with the sacrifice of a lamb. You sacrifice the lamb and you place the blood of the lamb on the door frames, and then the judgment will pass over the house, hence the name, pass over. And so Paul says here, he says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. What he's doing, of course, is he's drawing a comparison between the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and the death of the Passover lamb. He's saying, we have been saved from God's judgment too, but not through the sacrifice of an animal, and not just on one night. No, Jesus Christ has been sacrificed for us to remove God's judgment from us forever. He says to the Corinthians, you're forgiven people. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us keep the feast, the festival. Well, which festival, you ask? Well, God instructed the Israelites to celebrate the Passover every year. They were to kill a lamb and eat it to remind them of that part of the story. And something else, as part of the festival, they had to remove all the leaven from their house. The leaven, or the yeast as it's translated here, and yeast is just a type of leaven, raising agent in baking of bread. Now, what did this mean in practice? Well, of course, they didn't go out to the shop and buy yeast in little packets like, like we do. Now, they were basically sourdough bakers, real hipsters. Um, that's the, the thing, is sourdough. And they, uh, that meant, of course, there's a sourdough mixture, picture it, bubbly mixture that you feed um, with your flour and water, and it keeps producing more of the same yeasty mixture. And then you mix in a bit of that with the new bread that you're making, and it rises much more slowly than with, the, uh, than with a little packet of yeast. Well, the mixture can go on for a long time. Katie, my wife, she is a sourdough baker, and her mixture has been going since lockdown. Um, still alive and um, still going strong. Well, Katie's mixture would not have lasted that long in a Jewish house. In the Old Testament, in an Israelite house, it would not have lasted very long because every Passover festival, they would ruthlessly remove all the leaven all this starter dough, they would remove it from their houses. And then they would start again with unleavened bread. And so the cycle would continue. Why? What, what was the point of all that? Well, it all goes back to that first Passover. Do you know what happened that night? The book of Exodus tells us they left in such a hurry that there wasn't time for the slow-rising sourdough to rise. There wasn't time. And so as they left Egypt, they had to leave it all behind. The old bread, they left it in the land of slavery. And their first meal as free people was 
with unleavened bread, as we're told in the book of Exodus. Well, that's all, the, that's all in the background. Of Paul, of course, he knew all the background very, very well. But maybe you're beginning to glimpse the picture that Paul's painting. He's saying, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. So therefore, we have a, we have a festival to celebrate. We have a freedom to enjoy. And how do we do it? Well, it doesn't actually involve going around our houses and removing all the, all the leaven. Otherwise, Casey's mixture would be done for. No. He says it's getting rid of the things that belong to the life of slavery. The old life. Getting rid of them. Chucking them out. Purging them from the house like the Jews did, the Israelites did with the, with the, um, the leaven. Get rid of it, he says. And instead, celebrate the new festival, the feast. Trusting in Christ our Passover lamb, we eat, we, we eat a new batch of bread. The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he says there, put a, get rid of the old yeast, the yeast of corruption and wickedness, and uh, to eat the new bread, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul's reasoning, he's saying, he's, basically, he's saying, look, we have become, through Christ's offering of himself on the cross as our Passover lamb, we have become a new, pure, holy people, rescued from slavery to sin. So let us live like that. Sin out, sincerity and truth in. As we are, so we must be. That's the underlying logic. As we are, so we must be. Now we get very similar thinking in the glorious verse 11 of chapter 6. Very similar uh, thinking. Paul lists examples of sins which are incompatible with inheriting the kingdom of God. They, they, and, and in fact, the Corinthians knew these sins only too well because uh, from, in, in their past life. Because Paul says to them, he says, that is what some of you were. Past tense, that's what some of you were. But what happened when Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed? You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. They were now, they were, well, those, those words, they were, they were washed, clean. They were sanctified, set apart as holy, justified. They were declared righteous by the word of death of the Son of God and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so, he says, you can no longer live the lifestyle characterized by those old ways of sin. As they have become, so let them live. As we are, so let us be. New, clean, pure, and holy. Now, look, we have invested quite a lot of time, disproportionate amount of time, in those three verses. But I hope now we get a easy grasp of the rest of the passage, which we're just going to overview and survey. There are two issues going on in the Church of Corinth that Paul tackles in these chapters, five and the first half of six. Um, and in both cases, the yeast of the old life, the leaven of the old life, was infecting and corrupting the church and uh, was wrecking the festival of the unleavened bread that they were to celebrate together. So let's look at them in turn. First of all, chapter 5, and uh, we could call that the Corinthians and the incestuous man. 
Corinthians and the incestuous man. Basically, chapter 5 is about how the Corinthians have handled, or rather have not handled, one of their number who has committed gross sexual immorality. So chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have put out, been filled with grief, and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? So this man is having an incestuous sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now, that was outrageous, Paul indicates here, even within Corinthian culture, which was notoriously sexually immoral. But more importantly, it was in defiance of the basic sexual ethic of Israel, the Old Testament sexual ethic, which Paul and the other apostles consider still to apply in the church. Consistently, they do. Now, thankfully, this sin, which is not nice to think about, is not our focus. The sin in itself is not the the, the focus here. Paul's real concern is that the church has done nothing about this man. They've not grieved at his spectacular moral failure. They have not removed this offender from the church. No, they've just continued in their proud, self-confident way as though everything were fine, just ignoring this guy's behavior in their midst. So, now, there's no ambiguity about this, this situation. Paul is absent, but he, he, the, the facts are very well established. There's no need to establish them with some kind of investigation. It's very clear what's happening, and because it seems they're pretty much boasting about it. Oh, we're such free people now. Jesus has set us free. We can do what we like. We're going to come across that attitude next week in chap- uh, the second half of chapter 6. So we're going to return to that, particularly on the issue of sexual morality. We'll come back to that next week, so that so I'm, where I'm glossing over that a little bit now. But the, 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 the point is here, the major issue is that they should have dealt with this man and they should have removed him for two reasons. First of all, for this man's own sake. So he says, look, verse 5, it sounds very drastic. It says, hand him over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme so that the sinful nature might be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. That's, a, that's basically a way of saying, handing him over to Satan, it seems to be a way of saying, basically expel him from the church. The church is the realm of Jesus. He says, expel, get, you push him out, that he may taste life outside under the rule of Satan, the world. And of course, the hope though, is not to destroy this man, but to see him ultimately come to his senses to repent and be restored which is always the aim of church discipline, is to think we long for people who are living in flagrant sin to be restored, repentant. But the other reason he needs to be removed is that, verse 6, we've already read this verse, a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough. In other words, the old leaven must not be um, allowed to contaminate the new batch, the new festival. The old leaven must not be present at the new festival, which we as a church of Jesus Christ are called to celebrate. Well, the message just gets underlined as Paul goes on. You can't miss it. If someone calls himself a Christian, but verse 11 is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slander or a drunkard or a swindler, then with such a person, do not even eat. Now, it's important to say what he's not, he's not saying, he's not saying everybody in the church, then you have to become perfect, because that would be that, that was ab- absolutely 
not. The point is, you know, people, we're all struggling sinners and all of these things. I'm, I'm there on that list. Um, and I suspect you may be as well at different points of your life and in different areas. But when we walk in these areas and fail and fall flat on our face, we repent and we turn and we, and, and we move forward with Jesus. That's what church life is about. But if you get someone who is saying, no, I'm living like this, but that's fine. I'm going to do absolutely nothing about it. You know, habitually, um, uh, with no sign of repentance, Paul says, with such a person, do not even eat. Again, verse 13, in the words of the Old Testament law, expel the wicked person from among you. Now, you might think, well, this is Paul. You know, Paul, Paul has a reputation of being a bit harsh. This is exactly what Jesus taught. You know, if there's an issue, take it up first with the person, then make it a bit more wider, and if they wide if with the, the rest of the church. If they still won't listen, says Jesus, put them out and treat them as you would a pagan and a tax collector. That's the words of Jesus. This is basic Christian teaching. And it sits very uneasily with a kind of postmodern mindset that we live in our time that basically makes inclusion at all costs such a high value. And Christians feel the tension here too. Rightly, we do feel the tension. I love the way one commentator puts it on this, the dilemma. He says, the church, we do walk a tightrope between being a welcoming community that accepts um, and con uh, confessed sinners and helps the lapsed get back on their feet. We, 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 we want to do that. But, he says, we're, there's a dilemma between that and actually being a morally lax community where anything goes. We certainly can't be that. You see, so it is a tightrope. It's not easy. We have a festival to celebrate, and you need bread to eat. We're free people. As we are, so we must be. And that means there comes a time, as in this case with this man, when the Corinthians' Christian duty was actually to say, I'm sorry, you need to be out. It's not what we're used to hearing, but it is part of the New Testament apostolic church teaching. Right, second case now, where the old leaven was starting to contaminate the new unleavened bread, and it's the first half of chapter 6, and we could call this, if we could have the next heading up please, um, chapter 6, the Corinthians and their grasping lawsuits. Right, so, chapter verse 1, if any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment, instead of before the saints? Now, it seems what was going on basically was that, the, and we know this, there were a few very powerful people in the Corinthian church, powerful in worldly terms, and they had the financial clout basically to use the courts to get whatever they wanted and to screw things out of people and, uh, and uh, to intimidate them into uh, using the, the means of this world to, to get them. And uh, maybe that was just part of Corinthian culture, um, but the Corinthian, the... the, the these powerful people in the church had actually used their influence, it seems, and their money to twist the legal system to work in their favour, to fleece their brothers and sisters in the church. It was absolutely outrageous. You can't get much more old leaven lifestyle than that. And uh, Paul's absolutely horror-struck at their brazenness. He says that the first word of the chapter in, in, in Greek is actually it's the word dare. Dare you? How dare you do this? He says to them. He says, look, as a church, you will stand at Jesus' side when Jesus judges the world and the fallen angels. He says, and yet you're playing trivial law cases 
to get one up on one another, presumably financially, in the, in the civil courts. By the way, there's nothing here. This is the point here is not that Christians should never go to um, the civil magistrates. If there is a real, a substantial, let alone a criminal matter to settle, then we must use them and be very grateful for police and and um, uh, legal structures. Of course, we should. But Paul isn't talking about serious cases here. The Corinthians, he, he uses the word trivial. They were taking trivial complaints to court, presumably to make money out of one another through litigation. I don't know what it was, wills, um, property disputes, other relatively small things that they were just using to grasp what they could get out of one another. And it's a travesty. Especially in the light of Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. Listen to Paul in verse, verses 7 to 8, um, which sort of echoes Jesus' uh, uh, ideas, really. He says, the very fact you've got lawsuits among you means you've already been completely defeated already. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. This does not belong at the feast. Says Paul, this is the bread, this is the old bread of corruption and wickedness. Get rid of it. Habitual, unrepented sin is incompatible with the eternal kingdom of God. And verses 9 and 10 really gather the whole of these chapters together with references, interestingly, both to sexual immorality, that's going on in chapter 5, and to, uh, to this, this issue of grasping and, uh, and, and abuse through litigation in chapter 6. It brings them together and he says, verse 9 and 10, do you not know? In other words, you should do. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I probably don't need to tell you that the mention there of same-sex sexual activity has generated an enormous amount of discussion. So, the, And the question is, does Paul... Um, only refer to some forms of same-sex sexual intimacy or to, uh, or, 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 or to all forms or just to certain types of abusive or coercive um, expressions of it. I'm convinced that it does apply to all forms. And there's a, there's a host of reasons why, I, why I, I, I believe and think that. Paul's choice of Greek words, the wider context of his thought, the close relationship between uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, and other passages and the, the, the aspects of the Old Testament law and so on. Uh, and I'm very happy to suggest books that discuss that at length, and there are, are so many of them. But I'm not going to dwell on that in this particular discussion now, because there are only two words that refer um, to the sin of same-sex sexual relationships um, in a list of ten sins here. And... Um, and, of course, the list of ten is not meant to be exhaustive. They're um, indicative of uh, a wider problem. Now, I don't want to, uh, so, and I don't want to give particular sins of uh, same-sex um, uh, relationships more weight than the others. Um, and actually, how many of us, any of us, can claim never to have violated God's laws in these ways? Well, I'm on that list several times. Everything on that list, it's the ways of the world. That is the, the ways of the world. And they are incompatible with the ways of the kingdom of God. 
not that we, of course we fall and we, 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 we make a mess of things and we drop back into the old life and by God's grace we repent and we move forward and we say, no, that is not how I'm going to live. And that's, that, that's what we're about, helping one another as we do that. But we cannot go on habitually, unrepentantly living in these sins as though they don't really matter and truly belong to God's kingdom. It cannot be done. Whatever we may say about the sincerity and reality of our faith, we are deceiving ourselves. And Paul says here, do not be deceived. So some of the Corinthians, he says, look, he says, you, you, um, you once lived like this. I love that phrase. You were that. But wonderful thing has happened. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. As you are, as God has made you, so you must be. He says, you're washed people. So live as clean. Live clean in the, in the eyes and the teaching of Christ and the law of God. We're sanctified. He says, so we must be holy. What you are, so we must be. We are sanctified, that is made holy, so we must live holy. We are justified, that is declared righteous, so we must live righteously. We've been forgiven, and so we've been we've forgiven from sin, so we must live free of sin as far as we possibly can in our aims, our great aim to live free of sin, both ourselves and as a church family. Now, what has the Spirit of God been saying um, to you this morning? If anything, if you sense that, I don't know. There are, I don't know, 100 plus people in the building, um, different issues, different needs, different uh, experiences. May God pinpoint now in the quiet where you and I need to, what does he say? Get rid of the old leaven of corruption and wickedness and feast on the new bread of sincerity and truth. A few moments of quiet and May the Spirit of God now search our hearts. Search us, O God. Know our thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus Christ, to the glory of the Father. Amen.